today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, let's talk about the World Health Organization, their report that they're releasing uh, this week uh, in regard to the origins of COVID-19, how it started, how we got here, how do we stop it, all that sort of thing. And now there seems to be as many people questioning the World Health Organization report uh, as they are buying into it. Let's bring in Stephen Chase, senior parliamentary reporter for the Globe and Mail, and is with us now. Stephen, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, good to be here. So I remember when we we sent a whole pile of people over there to investigate and such, and now this report is out. But now it seems to be there's more questions than there are answers about this report, including its credibility. What can you tell us about the credibility of this report and why some are questioning it? Well, the concern, uh, and it's a widespread concern, is that the World Health Organization was not given access to everything it needed to see when it visited China recently in order to determine, uh, to, to shed new light on the origins of the coronavirus. So let me and, interrupt you there, Stephen. Why does the World Health Organization not come out and say this before they release the report? Here are the conditions of the report, for example. I, I imagine there's the problem with the World Health Organization is that it, it also has to be a diplomat at the same time because it it requires the cooperation of China in other areas that have nothing to do with the coronavirus, and that in many ways, uh, being diplomats, they pull their punches uh, because they don't see the point in angering China. So it still is nevertheless really interesting that earlier this week, the chief of the World Health Organization actually actually, you know, injected a note of, of caution and concern about the findings of this investigation into the origins of COVID-19. Dr. Tedros, you know, actually said he's not sure that we we should be so quick to dismiss the notion that um, the, the virus escaped from a lab. So he actually showed a, a rare and unusual um, a degree of skepticism uh, which, by questioning his own report. Absolutely, it, it has been a very difficult year for the World Health, or- Health Organization. They are the same ones that a year ago uh, uh, started parroting the same lines as just Chinese officials when Chinese officials were seeking to stop the world from shutting borders and closing travel routes. He was he was the one who was there with the Chinese saying, "Don't do that." And of course, it turned out much later to be uh, to been a disastrous decision for us not to have acted sooner. So the World Health Organization bears a lot of um, well, it's, it's endured a lot of criticism over its role, and 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 also for not apparently pushing China harder to uh, admit uh, people in early on to help figure out where the coronavirus came from. All we can say these days is that. It, 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 it first showed up in, in China because we have no um, independently corroborated uh, evidence to show that, in fact, uh, it might have it might have begun there. So it was really interesting to see what the World Health Organization did this week. The chief did this week. It was an, it was unexpected and unusual given he has been so cautious in in the, over the last year in doing anything that might upset China. Well, you know, you read the headlines. Uh, WHO chief says all theories on COVID-19 origins are on the table and require further investigation. That was supposed to be what this investigation did. No? 
Yes, and I think it's a recognition that the investigation was flawed, an admission that the rest of the investigation was flawed. The the WHO team uh, was admitted into China essentially a year after the barn doors had been closed. They, they don't think anyone believes that they were given unfettered and full access to um, to the evidence that might help them establish a chain of events. And I think that... Um, it, that we all expected that the report would be essentially a dud. Uh, but to hear, in a very unexpected move, to hear Dr. Tedros say that the theory that the coronavirus emerged accidentally from a lab required further investigation, and that he was ready to deploy more experts to do so, uh, is certainly heartening to many people who've been watching this unfold over the last year and, and watching uh, the WHO's timidity in the face of um, pressure from China. So getting back to the lab theory, what is it now? W- w- from what we know, even from the limited amount from this report, is the lab theory dead? Is it something that needs further investigation? I think what he is saying is that it cannot be dismissed out of hand. He, he And again, this, these are baby steps. These are not, uh, this is not uh, a wholesale um, he's not jumping whole, uh, in a wholesale manner right. behind the this theory. The, the report, which was issued, that everyone was so concerned about, actually dismissed the lab leak theory outright, yeah. calling it extremely unlikely. Okay, but they based their conclusion largely on conversations with scientists in Wuhan. So, uh, Dr. Tedros, by by refusing to close the door to this, has basically signaled. Uh, that we're going to need more data and studies, and he will not accept the results of this report to to sort of mm. be the final story onto what happened with the coronavirus. As you know, Australia, the government of Australia, uh, took the extraordinary um, step last fall of calling for an independent uh, uh, investigation into the origin of COVID, and was punished quite heavily by China, which has uh, subsequently slapped uh, export bans on. A range of products, from wine to coal to other raw minerals and resources, and so on. So China has been very quick to punish those who would who would call for an independent investigation. And what Dr. Tetros seems to be saying is he doesn't believe this investigation was up to snuff either. So how does or why does China have so much influence over the World Health Organization? Well, uh, two reasons. One of which the World Health Organization isn't just investigating the coronavirus. It also needs uh, to have China's cooperation in 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 other health measures and other treating other diseases. And it wants to see China cooperate. Also, the other reason is that over the last 15 years, the Chinese have been very um, assiduous about getting involved in UN organizations, making sure that they are. Uh, present at every meeting, making sure that their 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 people are are in the organizations, and they've they've taken a they've put made a, put a lot of effort into 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 getting a, a strong seat at the table. These organizations, in in uh, even as the United States might have neglected these organizations under the Trump uh, presidency, the Chinese have been very good at making sure that they are there at the decision making table, that their voice is heard, and that they're, they're they can throw their weight around. So. It reflects uh, an, an, um, the the efforts of the Chinese to to um, play a larger role in all UN organizations.
So I uh, only got a couple of minutes left here, Stephen. want to ask you about a uh, headline in the Globe, China's clumsy sanctions on Canada's opposition backfires. Uh, Conservative MP Michael Chong has been sanctioned after uh, Canada sanction, uh, put sanctions on uh, China. Uh, uh, Michael Chong says he wears this as a badge of honor. Uh, only thing is, is he's in the opposition. He's not in the ruling liberals. So did 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 uh, did China goof here, or was this a direct hit trying to hit the opposition rather than the liberals who abstained from the vote on the on genocide issues in in China with both the prime minister and his cabinet? So what happened here? Why right. why why this why this MP? Mr. Chong was the uh, the sort of architect of the resolution or the motion in Parliament uh, in the House of Commons that that labeled China's conduct in Xinjiang as a genocide. The the uh, forced sterilizations, the internment camps, uh, everything. He was the, he is the person who got that ball rolling, and and, and ultimately, of course. Parliament voted unanimously to uh, to label China as a genocide. So, Mr. the Chinese have reason to be upset at Mr. Chong. It is totally, it is very notable that they they uh, they decided not to sanction any liberals. Nobody in the governing party is sanctioned or barred from entering China. They um, and that is, uh, uh, I think, um, very unusual. Even the U.S. in the U.S. when the U.S. China applied similar sanctions against the U.S. they hit Democratic, um, they hit Democratic appointees, but in Canada they didn't hit any members of the governing party. And of course, as you said, the Liberal cabinet uh, abstained from voting. So um, there, there is likely a message in that. Uh, we're still trying to figure out um, if there's anything we're missing because they also sanctioned the House of Commons committee, the subcommittee on human rights. But they didn't name one person, so it looks like it's sort of a paper target as opposed to actually uh, a genuine attempt to hit every member of that committee, which would include liberals. Can this work in the Conservatives' favor? I mean, it seems pretty obvious there's some favoritism here for the liberals um, without the sanctions lying on them. Um, and, And what does this mean to the MP to be sanctioned? What does that mean for him personally? Well, Mr. Chong, whose father was born in Hong Kong, uh, cannot travel back to the, his 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 father's homeland. He cannot enter Hong Kong or Macau or mainland China. He's forbidden from traveling there. So that is the that's the gist of the sanctions is a is a travel ban. Interestingly enough, when Christian Freeland was in the opposition benches in 2014, the Russians sanctioned her too. So they do have a habit of of looking to prominent opposition. Uh, ben backbencher. She, of course, is forbidden from traveling to to Russia. That remains in the books. Hmm. All right, uh, Stephen Chase with us, senior parliamentary reporter with the Globe and Mail, talking about the World Health Organization and their recent report and China's influence uh, on it. Stephen, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. You're welcome. Take care. Bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Our full commitment is to get children back to class following the April break. But what I want to do in the context of the April break is plan for it, proceed on the basis it is happening, but with the commitment to our parents and the educators themselves, our frontline staff, that we're going to be elevating our, um, our infection prevention measures and our testing access for students and staff because we recognize numbers are rising in the community. Now, we also recognize schools have been safe in this province overwhelmingly, a position you know, not made by politicians, made by the leading health authorities in the country who continue to believe 
that they have been safe places, notwithstanding issues that arise, particularly often when cases come from the community into the school themselves, putting them at risk. All right, that's Education Minister Stephen Lecce earlier on today at his news conference uh, talking about policy that already uh, was mentioned in the budget. However, of course, to ask questions about uh, spring break. And at this point, I was almost said March break, but it's now the uh, March-April break. Uh, spring break um, being altered or changed in any way and uh, obviously saying at this point uh, it's status quo. But, of course, uh, as we uh, understand, there's more information coming out tomorrow from the premier in regard to restrictions so uh everything is pretty fluid at this time let's bring in travis danraj to kind of decode it queen's park bureau chief for global news he's with us now travis thanks for the time i hope you're well i'm fantastic scott how are you doing good thanks so uh thanks for joining us i know you're busy uh first of all the the education minister really nothing there more other than uh spring break is status quo yeah, I mean, that's what I, I, I gauge from it. Obviously, you know, all of this is in flux right now. And we saw today, you know, some of the highest ICU numbers uh, that we have ever seen since the pandemic began. So I, I think the government is taking a hard look at that today. There's a cabinet meeting uh, that right now, actually, where they're going to be, you know, getting the advice from Dr. Williams and seeing how they move forward, not only with schools, but overall with restrictions and whether or not that is a a province-wide lockdown, whether or not that is regional approach again, we will see. Uh, obviously, uh, earlier on this morning, a news conference with uh, the premier members of the federal government and provincial government and uh, an industry in revo- uh, in uh, involving rather uh, a new plant coming to Ontario that can produce a vaccine. During that news conference, he was obviously the premier asked uh, about uh, what you just said: cases going up and, and further restrictions. Are we to expect that? Uh, it sort of he sort of alluded to we might hear more tomorrow. Yeah, and I mean, this is the thing that gets people somewhat frustrated, right? That, that there's this teasing of announcements that happens, but wait until tomorrow and you'll find out. Um, I, I understand cabinet's meeting, but, uh, you know, people want answers right now, and I don't see how they don't put in tougher measures with the variant spread being what it is, with the ICU capacity being what it is. So, you know, I am expecting, and the Premier did really kind of foreshadow this, that we're going to be seeing some pretty significant tough measures tomorrow in terms of what we can expect after the holidays. Uh, obviously, a cabinet meeting today, as you mentioned right now, on all of this, and, and hopefully we'll hear more tomorrow. Uh, any indication of what this is going to look like? Is it a typical, because it seems obviously the framework changes from first to second to third wave as, as we try to zero in on certain things. But are you getting any sort of feedback at all of what this could include? Well, well I mean, listen, like, Right now, essentially, you know, there are a lot of regions in this province, Toronto, Peel included, that are in lockdown, that are in the gray zone, that are in the highest, you know, level of the framework. And what the government has done over the past couple of weeks is every time they announce a new area going into the gray zone, with that, they also announce that there is an easing of restrictions of the gray zone. You know, patios have opened up uh, for outdoor dining. On the 12th, the barber shops were supposed to open up as well. Outdoor fitness classes now allowed. So you, you slowly see the, the gray getting a lighter and lighter shade. And I think tomorrow it's going to go to a much darker gray. 
What more do we? <laughs> a darker shade of gray. That was a that was a song in the '60s, wasn't it? I don't know. Uh, yeah. So, um, uh, what about the announcement around this uh, the Sanofi plant? And you know, we're we're getting sort of conflicting information of what it's even about. Uh, some are saying this is to produce influenza vaccine. Uh, it's not necessarily um, the, the sort of thing that we would be using with with COVID nineteen. Uh, also, it's not the RM, RNA, uh, what am I, MNRA technology of the Pfizer and right. Moderna. It's more right. the the other technology, the older technology. Um, do we know any, much about what this will be and, and why we're not investing in newer technology? Yeah, so so this is my story for Global National tonight. So I encourage everyone, if you are uh, have the TV on tonight, watch Global National because this will be my story. And we're looking at you know this big announcement today, Sanofi, Pasteur, uh, they are a, a, a pharmaceutical giant that is based in France, and right now they are assisting manufacturing of uh, the BioNTech vaccine in uh, Europe and also in the United States. This announcement today of the production facility in North York doesn't have to do with COVID. It has to do with uh, you know future vaccines uh, and influenza vaccines to be produced at this expanded facility. So essentially, this is the location that is in North York. They are putting in a $925 million investment along with the three levels of government to create this almost billion-dollar production distribution facility. Um, But this really is not going to help with the situation right now. It is more down the road because, you know, I think that one thing that this whole pandemic did expose is the fact that we do not have enough capability in this country to produce vaccines. Um, you know, there's a big question mark as to why, you know, there wasn't a, a you know, big investment early on for, uh, you know, companies like Sanofi uh, when it comes to producing and getting them retooled to produce the COVID uh, vaccines. And, and this company is also right now in development with GlaxoSmithKline of a, of a new, they're in phase two trials of a new vaccine and there was no real talk about that today and if this new relationship with the federal government and the province will mean that we're higher up on the priority list if that vaccine does eventually uh, get approved. So, I mean, it's an interesting announcement and it will help down the road, but people are thinking about right now. It's not going to help with right now. Why not a Canadian solution here? Because, again, you know, we're still relying on something out of the U.S., then indirectly through France. Uh, and we saw what happened with Pfizer and Moderna in regard to that. So, again, we're depending on a foreign company uh, from another land to help us here. Why not a Canadian solution? Well, listen, they're saying that this is going to create around 1,200 uh, 1200 jobs. They're saying that the company, uh, you know, they could have gone anywhere else in the world, and they decided to come to Canada. They are going to be investing uh, in addition to this, uh, you know, extended, expanded plant uh, and production facility. They're investing $79 million a year more into Canadian research and development. But you're right. I mean, the, the, the country has had its problems and its share of problems solidifying you know, uh, vaccine and also domestic supply since the beginning of this. You remember back to the beginning, you know, there was that Ken Sino uh, deal uh, with the Chinese yeah. company that fell through. Um, there were delays retooling the National Research Council's Montreal facility that was going to do uh, domestic production. So, I mean, certainly that is a question. Why are we investing in Canadian companies when it comes to this? But, uh, 
that was not addressed at the news conference today. Uh, Travis, another thing I wanted to touch on on with uh, with you is, and we've been doing a lot of this in the last several uh, weeks about supply chain and vaccines being left in freezers, uh, and there's almost this conspiracy theory going around that that us or other provinces have all of these uh, vaccines sitting in freezers. And, you know, I, I talked to the mayor or that we have a clip of the mayor. I talked to uh, Paul Johnson, who's the director of our emergency center here in Hamilton, uh, Sable Ray from uh, McGill university, who's a supply chain and, and, and studies this sort of thing. And they all said it's bunk. Uh, and, and the best analogy we could come up with as far as vaccines and freezers, was that, you know, it's like doing your weekly grocery shopping. If you go out and grocery shop on a weekly uh, schedule on a Saturday, Saturday night and Sunday, you're going to have tons of groceries in your fridge. But by the time Thursday and Friday rolls around, it's going to be empty. And then you go out and buy again. These vaccines are coming in on a weekly, uh, every two weeks, every three weeks. So they'll always be mass amounts in a freezer until the supply diminishes. Uh, do people not understand that these are for people whose appointments we're booking on a daily basis? And if you don't uh, hold their vaccine for them, then they don't get any. Why are we constantly blaming the provinces for this? Because, again, I've had expert after expert after expert saying that if there are no vaccines in a freezer, the supply chain grinds to a halt. Uh, we heard the mayor say that, you know, a clinic up in Rosedale won't be opening, going to be delayed because of lack of supply. The situation in Wonderland, the same sort of thing. So where do the rumors come from and, and the credibility that governments are sitting on piles of vaccine in a freezer? Well, I mean, I think it comes from, you know, folks going to their local shoppers, drug mart or what have you, and then them saying that they're, they're out of supply. Um, in some respects, that's, that's good because it shows that, you know, a, a lot of these doses are going into arms. And we even saw last weekend that, you know, there are some Toronto hospitals that were creating standby lists because the situation that nobody wants is that, you know, there are vaccines that are, uh, you know, opened and then they are wasted and mm-hmm. that don't go into arms or expire. And, and so there are, you know, a number of measures that the province and, and, you know, local public health units and hospitals are taking so that that does not happen, so that they can call somebody, you know, if they, they have opened a, a couple of vials that are in within, you know, 30 minutes, 20 minutes of getting to the, the, the clinic. And, you know, yesterday the province did release um, you know, their allocations, and they released kind of a spreadsheet in terms of what they are getting from the federal government and the status of these, uh, you know, vaccines from Pfizer, from Moderna, and AstraZeneca. Uh, you know, I think it was 200, over 200,000 doses of Moderna that are expected uh, next week, uh, April 7th. There are, on March 9th, uh, 194,000 doses expected federally, and then that will be allocated to the province as well. So, you know, the supply is coming in. It's just I think that there are various opinions on the distribution plan um, that you're hearing from from everybody, every you know, it's everybody's a, a critic. There are a lot of <laughs> right now. Exactly, it's like taking a, a box of fries and throwing it into a McDonald's parking lot and waiting for the uh, seagulls and the pigeons to come in. My goodness, uh, Travis Danraj with us, Queens Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight uh, and watch Travis's report on uh, the new plant coming, uh, which will produce a vaccine. Travis, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. You too, Scott. 
The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.